Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to John chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pew back in front of you. You can grab one of those. John chapter 18. Starting in verse 33, we'll read through verse 38. John 18, 33 through 38. These are the words of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we do praise you and we thank you for sending your Son into this world that we might know the truth and that by knowing the truth and the man who is the truth, we to know you set free. Set free from our sin and set free to know you and live in the light of your love. Live for you. Lord, we pray that as we look at this text this morning, by your spirit, we would learn. By your spirit, what we do not know, we would know. What we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. We pray this all in the good name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and for all time, and amen. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, how the Jews in Jerusalem, particularly the religious leaders, rejected their own Messiah, rejected Jesus, and then brought him to Pilate with the intent of having Pilate crucify him, with the intent of having Pilate do their dirty work, we could say, for them. They wanted rid of Jesus. Now today, we come back to this same passage, but our focus is upon this interaction that Jesus has with Pilate, this discussion, this short discussion that they have, which leads to Pilate concluding that Jesus is not guilty. He's not guilty of any crime worthy of death, even though later Pilate ends up bending to the demands of the Judeans and he condemns the Lord to the painful and shameful death of the cross. Now, one thing we need to keep in mind as we examine this passage that we have here before us this morning is that Pilate stands in the place of those in positions of earthly power and authority. They hand Jesus over to Pilate as the one who by virtue of the Roman Empire, 
by the authority of the Roman emperor himself, rules over this area of Judea with the authority, with the authority to take men's lives, with the authority to either have, and so as we, at least, or to have him put to death. And so as we, as we listen to what Jesus says to him, we need to keep this in mind. Jesus clarifies when he talks to this Roman governor, this, this secular authority, this man who stands in, in, in a secular position, earthly position of authority and power, Jesus clarifies two things. First, the nature of his kingdom, and second, the purpose of his coming. And then sadly, Pilate's response to this was a, a kind of agnostic neutrality towards Jesus. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I came bearing witness to the truth, and with a wave of, of the hand, Pilate walks out away from Jesus with that question, what is truth? So first, we're going to consider what Jesus says about his kingdom and his mission, or as we'll see, more his strategy. And then we're going to look at Pilate's foolish dismissal of the Lord. So first, his kingdom. What does Jesus say about his kingdom? We'll look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? The first question that Pilate asked Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Now, that's an odd question for him to ask unless he had been fed that line. I highly doubt this was common procedure for Pilate that any Jewish man that was handed over to him with various accusations against him, his, okay, let's look at my list of questions that I ask people who are brought to me. First question, are you the king of the Jews? That wasn't part, part of Pilate's procedure. Pilate had been fed that line toward what accusations the Jews made against Jesus, but this was clearly one of them. And that's why Jesus responds by asking Pilate, are you asking this of your own accord? Is this something you've heard from me yourself? Or have you heard this from someone else? And Pilate's response reveals that it was actually the latter. And this is confirmed in Luke's account. Look at Luke 23, verse 1. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. That's the Pharisees, the chief priests, all of the religious leaders. They rise up, they bring Jesus to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Uh-oh, not paying his taxes and telling people not to pay their taxes. That sounds pretty serious. And what else? Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So you see, this was their tactic to deliver Jesus up to Pilate as a political insurrectionist. You know, they believed this was their best chance of convincing Pilate, the Roman governor, to find Jesus guilty of a crime that was worthy of death. They couldn't bring Jesus before Pilate and say, he's got some doctrinal issues that we have a problem with. He's teaching some heresy according to our law. 
No, they knew that wouldn't do for Pilate. So they made this accusation. They brought Jesus and they presented him as this political insurrectionist. And so Pilate's interest in Jesus at this point is to find out whether or not this Jew that was handed over to him by his own people was really actually an adversary of Rome. Was he setting himself up in opposition to Roman rule? Was he an insurrectionist? Was he a revolutionary? Was he setting himself against Rome in hope of, hopes of establishing himself as some kind of king, the king of the Jews, and lead some Jewish revolution? Now, don't forget, Jesus is aware of all of this, right? He knows what his accusers were up to, and he knows what Pilate thinks of when Pilate hears the word king and the phrase king of the Jews. And so it's in this context that Jesus says these words, verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says this to Pilate? Because these words have often been taken out of their context and misunderstood by Christians. First, notice that Jesus admits, he admits here to having a kingdom. It's so easy to, to, to miss. First and most plainly, Jesus admits to having a kingdom, just as he admits in verse 37 that he is indeed a king. You say that I am a king, sounds like to us, well, you say it, but I'm not going to tell you whether it's true or not. But that's not how it was used. That, this was a rhetorical device in that day and age. This was a way of saying in that day, I am king just like you say. It is as you say, I am king. That's why if any of you have the NASB translation, you may have noticed, the NASB translates that phrase, you say correctly that I am a king. Now, Jesus could have said, no, Pilate, you've got it all wrong. They've got it all wrong. They've just been telling lies about me. I'm no king and I have no kingdom. He could have just flat out denied that there was any truth to the charge that he considered himself a king or that he was a king, but he didn't because that wouldn't have been the truth. And all that our Savior spoke was truth. And the truth was, and the truth is, that Jesus is in fact the king, and he does have a kingdom. He's the sin for all who believe, which means the gospel is the good news, not only of his salvation for all who believe and trust in him, surrender their lives to him, but also the good news of his reign or his kingdom. It's the good news that the Son of God, Jesus, is the Son of God who took on flesh, came to this earth to save and to reign. His salvation is given freely to all who embrace him in faith. And his reign, listen very carefully, his reign is the only hope for this broken world which is in slavery to sin and death. So first, Jesus doesn't deny it, but he makes the good confession, as Paul says in Timothy, that he is a king, and he does have a kingdom. Now second, he clarifies that his kingdom is not of this world. What does Jesus mean when he says his kingdom is not of this world? 
Well, there are two helps that we have in discerning that, in discerning what he means. The first is the immediate context here in John chapter 18. And the second is the broader context of John. So first, the immediate context. In the immediate context, look right there at the very next second sentence that Jesus utters, right after he says, my kingdom is not of this world. What does he say? He says, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Rome, Rome was a kingdom of this world. Rome had armies. She had great, vast armies. And that is how Rome was established. And not only was that how Rome as an earthly kingdom was established, it was how Rome was maintained. Through physical force and earthly human power, or we might say external coercion. Bow or die. But that's not the kind that Christ has. Christ's kingdom is not that kind. Jesus is saying here to Pilate, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world, which use military might and violence to gain victory and dominate over its enemies. In other words, Jesus is saying, my kingdom, when he says my kingdom is not of this world, he's saying, my kingdom is not like this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. He's not saying my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Or as some have interpreted him saying, my kingdom is somewhere off in a galaxy far, far away. No, rather he's speaking of of the difference in origin and nature between his kingdom and the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom doesn't operate like, like the kingdoms of this world. It's not established by military conquest. In fact, this king's reign, we will find out very shortly, and we already know because we know the end of the story of John. This king's reign is established, his victory is secured by him giving himself to be raised up on a Roman cross by self-sacrifice. So our second help in understanding Jesus' words, my kingdom is not of this world, is in the broader context of John's gospel. This isn't the first time that Jesus has used this phrase, not of this world. When we read that, my kingdom is not of this world, and we've read John this whole time and studied John, our brains ought to have this little light bulb that goes on. Wait a second, I've heard Jesus use this phrase, not of this world before, many times before in John. He hasn't used it in reference to his kingdom, but he has used it in reference to his people. Look with me at John chapter 8. Many of you will remember this. John chapter 8, verse 23. He said to them, he's speaking to the Pharisees now, those who didn't believe in him, those who rejected him, those who had hard hearts and wouldn't listen to his voice. He says to them, you are above, I am from above. You You are of this world, I am not of this world. Now, skip to chapter 15, verse 19. What does he say to his apostles? He says to the Pharisees, those who don't believe in him, you are of this world and I am not of this world. He says to his apostles though, listen, chapter 15, verse 19, you, if you were of this world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
Now listen, very carefully, he didn't say, I took you out of the world. He said, I chose you out of the world. And because of that, you're not of the world. And that's why the world hates you. Now look at chapter 17, verse 14. I've given them your word. He's praying to the Father right now. Remember his high priestly prayer. And he's speaking of his disciples. And he says, I've given them your word and the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of the world. As I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, when Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're of this world, and when he says to his apostles, you're not of this world, he's not saying, you're terrestrials and you're extraterrestrials. You follow me? When he says to his apostles, you're not of this world, he's not saying, you're from Mars. Nor is he denying their physical presence in the world. He's speaking of their spiritual status as not belonging to the world of rebellious man that society which has set itself against its maker. You don't belong to them. Rather, you've been set apart by God and for God. Now, though they were, in the, though they were not of the world, they were still in the world, right? They were operating here. They were functioning here in material bodies, interacting as ordinary men do, yet Jesus was still able to say, he says to Pilate, my world. Now it's in this same manner that he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. That was not to say my kingdom is not operative here or that my kingdom has no impact upon this world and its social order. No, it was to say my kingdom is set apart from the kingdoms of this world. My kingdom is not of the same nature. It's a wholly different kind of kingdom. It's not from this world. Its origin is not earthly, but heavenly. It is established not by earthly means of power, but listen carefully, by heavenly means of power. Think for a moment with me about what Jesus said to Nicodemus back in chapter 3 of John. This, by the way, is the only other time in John that Jesus speaks of his kingdom. What does he say to Nicodemus? He says, no one can enter or see the kingdom of God, participate in the kingdom of God, except he is born again by the Spirit of God. How then is Christ's kingdom populated? It is not by means of earthly power through violent force, but by means of what kind of power? Heavenly power. It is by means of the Spirit at work in the heart of man giving man a new birth, taking his heart of stone as Ezekiel prophesied and turning it into a heart of flesh. Now, the reason why I belabor this point, why I'm taking so much time focused here on what Jesus says when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, is so that we understand clearly what Jesus is saying and what he is not saying about his kingdom or his reign, because it could be translated either way. If we miss that his kingdom is not of this world, then we will look to earthly means for establishing his kingdom. If we miss that what Jesus is teaching here is that his kingdom does not world, it doesn't kingdoms of this world, listen carefully, its origin is not the same as the kingdoms of this world, it doesn't operate the same as the kingdoms of this world, 
It doesn't advance like the kingdoms of this world. Then we're going to look to earthly means to establish Christ's kingdom on earth. That would turn Christianity into a religion that was more like radical Islam. Are you following me? Or to a lesser degree, it it might look like depending upon secular strategies to get more people into the doors and programs of the church. Maybe if we just started giving out free iPads every Sunday. And we think that by doing that, we're advancing Christ's kingdom. But what are we doing? Earthly, pragmatic means to establish his kingdom. That's not how his kingdom works. It's not how his kingdom is populated. It's not how it advances upon this earth. Or... If we ignore what he says when he says, my kingdom is not of this world, we might attempt to Christianize a society by means of law and governance, a kind of top-down sort of deal. We just Christianize this nation by passing the right kind of laws or getting the right people in, in the right places. So that's the danger on the one side. But on the other hand, if we misinterpret his statement my kingdom is not of this world, to mean my kingdom has nothing to do with this world. Then we make the mistake of limiting Christ's dominion and authority to merely the heavenly or spiritual realm or possibly to the distant future. And to do that, it would be to contradict what Christ actually claims in Matthew 28, 18. What does he claim? He claims all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. All authority, Jesus says, before he goes back and he ascends to the Father, after he dies and rises again from the dead, he says to his disciples, when he sends them out to make disciples of all nations, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, completely comprehensive. And that error, I believe, to miss that is a great threat to the church. The spiritual life, the error, this is the error of thinking that Christ is Lord only over the spiritual lives of those who have surrendered to him when in fact he is Lord over every single aspect of our lives. Everything we do, every part of us, spiritual or physical. And not only that, furthermore, he's Lord not just over the people who surrender to him, but he's Lord over every man. Listen carefully, he was Lord over Pilate. He is Lord over every governor, every king, every every single ruler in this world. He is Lord over every individual, whether they bow to him or not. Every man, listen carefully, every man, every family, every organization, every institution, every nation owes its allegiance to the king of kings. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him by the Father. Now, at this point, one might ask, If Christ did not come to establish his kingdom by the sword, then by what means does he plan for his kingdom to be advanced upon this earth? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Pilate's catching on. Pilate realizes, oh, well, he does see himself as a kind of king, (laughs) even though his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king, or certainly it is as you say. For this purpose I have come to bear witness to the truth. J.C. Ryle, 19th century Anglican bishop, 
commenting on this passage, says, no doubt he spoke with special reference to what he knew was passing through Pilate's mind. He did not come to win a kingdom with the sword or to gather adherents and followers by force. He came armed with no other weapon but truth. That was the means, right? He came armed, not with the sword, but he came armed with the truth. Now, you might ask, well, what truth? What truth is Jesus speaking of here? Just think about all that Jesus has taught in John. What truth did Jesus bear witness to in the Gospel of John? Well, the truth, primarily the truth of who he is. The truth of his divine sonship that he and the Father are one, that he came from the Father to speak the words of the Father and give life to all who would believe in him. The truth about man's sin and need of a new birth to enter into his kingdom. The truth about the final judgment to come. The truth about him being the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And the truth that the sheep listen to his voice and he gives them eternal life and on and on and on we could go. It's all the truth concerning God's plan of salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Truth which is attended by the work of the Holy Spirit to cause men and women to be born again and made citizens and partakers, participants of his kingdom. Christ was and is a king, and he came to establish a kingdom, but his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It would not be established by carnal means. This king came bearing, came wielding, not a sword, but the truth. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Step back with me for a moment and think about the whole story of, of Scripture in your mind, story of the world. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 3 in your minds. What was the weapon of the evil one that he used? What weapon did Satan wield to, to, to plunge this world into sin and destruction? You know where I'm going? What did he use to set this world against its maker? To turn this world upside down. To bring in death and destruction. What was it? It was a lie. It was a lie. That was his weapon. What did he say? You will not surely die. Did God really say? That was what Satan used and it brought in death and destruction into this world. In John 8, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies who speaks out of his own character and has no truth in him. That was what put this world to wrong. Not just the lie, but us believing the lie. And so when the Son of God comes, the second Adam, the king, to establish his kingdom, to redeem this lost world, what does he use? How does he do that? How does he right the wrong? He does that by speaking the truth. And that tells us that his kingdom is in direct opposition to the kingdom of Satan. 1 John 3, 8 tells us the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Sin and death will not be defeated by earthly means. The lie must be exposed by the truth. 
The darkness must be, must be put to flight by the light. And so the one who is the truth comes and he bears witness to the truth that all who listen to his voice might be of the truth and might be set free from the lie and the, from the slavery of sin. He says if he says in John 8, 31 to his disciples, to those who followed him, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my, truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. In verse 34, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, what then do Christ's followers do in the interest of his kingdom, his authority and his dominion in this world? What, we, what do we do in the interest of that? Well, we don't take up the sword or seek to employ weapons of this world. That's not the way his kingdom is established, and our fight is not against flesh and blood. Rather, we lay hold upon the truth and we follow in the footsteps of our Savior, and we proclaim that truth. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What do we do? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And how do we do that? By surrendering ourselves to the Lord of truth, taking every thought captive to Christ and proclaiming the truth of who he is and what he's done. And it is through the witness of the church, proclaiming the truth, following the example of their Savior, proclaiming the truth that he proclaimed, and by the power of the Spirit that Christ's kingdom is advanced upon this earth, even as it is in heaven. So we continue to do that until the day that every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Christ is Lord. J.C. Ryle again says, the servants of Christ in every age must remember that our Lord's conduct in this place, he's speaking of his, what he says to Pilate here about the truth, is meant to be their example. Like him, we are to be witnesses to God's truth, salt in the midst of corruption, light in the midst of darkness, men and women not afraid to stand alone and to testify for God against the ways of sin and the world. Our part is to proclaim, what do we do in the interest of advancing Christ's kingdom what is our part? Our part is to proclaim the truth. The truth about everything. The truth from God. Who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. Who Jesus is and what he's done. Even the truth about things like marriage. What did God design it for? The truth about sexuality. The truth about all of it. And the truth that sets men free that Jesus is the Savior. He's the one and only Savior. And only by faith in him can we be set free from our slavery to sin. Now, let's look at Pilate's folly. Verse 37. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. You know, it's ironic. At least I think, <laughs> I think it's ironic. Pilate asked the right question, didn't he? He asked the right question, just in the wrong way. He asked the right question, but with the wrong attitude, with the wrong intent. Jesus said, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And oh, that Pilate would have said in humility, what is the truth? Tell me, what is the truth that you have come to declare? But instead, Pilate asked the question in a way of dismissing the Lord. Truth, Pilate says. Who are you to tell me 
what the truth is and who can know the truth anyway. There's a sense in which Pilate stands very much in the place of postmodern man, doesn't he? The man who claims that ultimate truth, the truth, truth with a capital T, the truth cannot be known by you, by me, by any man. Pilate is like the agnostic who says, I don't know if there is a God or not, and that's something I cannot, we cannot know. Who's to say that one religion is right and the other is wrong? But Pilate reveals the folly of this way because the truth had come and was standing before They can't know. And it wasn't that Pilate couldn't know. And it isn't that man today can't know. It is that he will not hear the voice of Christ. He will not listen to the man of truth. Pilate's response to Jesus reveals something else to us too. It shows us that neutrality towards Jesus is a myth. Neutrality towards Jesus is a myth. Either you will listen to him and trust in him and know the truth, or you will be against him. There's no other position. There's no other way to interact with Jesus. It's one or the other. You see what Pilate's doing here is he's trying to walk that line. He declares, he ends up in this passage we saw two weeks ago. In this passage, he declares to the people three times that he has found Jesus not guilty. Yet he dismisses Christ's claim to bear witness to the truth. And in the end, he knowingly and willfully hands over the innocent Savior, the innocent man, the only truly innocent man in the history of mankind. He hands him over to be crucified. Why? Because he feared man more than God. Because he didn't want to lose his position of power and authority. He was enslaved to that fear. He was enslaved to his own sin. And only by listening to the truth of Christ could he have been set free. But he wouldn't listen. Now that's a lesson for all those today who would claim to neither be for or against Jesus. To be neutral on Jesus. Those who fool themselves into thinking that while Jesus may have been a good teacher, a good man, they can't really know the truth about him, whether he really was the son of God, whether he did indeed come bearing witness to the absolute truth, whether he really is the way, the truth, and the life. That sort of agnosticism is what we see in Pilate, and its end is death. I just have to say as we close, if that describes your position towards Jesus. Folly and turn away to look at Pilate. Look at him. See his folly and turn away from that way. Jesus came bearing witness to the truth and you can know the truth. You can know it. You don't have to walk away like Pilate said saying, what is truth? No one can know the truth. No, man can know the truth. You can indeed know the truth by listening to Christ's voice and believing Christ's words, you can know the truth. For as Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Isn't that something? Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. Jesus is implying here, he is implying here that everyone who doesn't listen to his voice is not of the truth. Everyone who refuses to listen to Jesus as he speaks to us in the pages of the New Testament, in the gospel, everyone who refuses to listen to Jesus' voice, Jesus says, they're not of the truth. And what does that mean? Well, it means that they are either living in ignorance or they're living in deception. 
Every single person, and this is from the words of Jesus, every single person that doesn't listen to his word is either living in deception or living in ignorance. That's a terrible thing. Can you imagine? Who wants to, who wants to base their life off of a lie? Who wants their life to be built upon deception? Jesus is the only one who can save us, you see, from living in the dark, not knowing what life is really about, why we're here, and what, or rather who we're made for. It's a terrible thing to live in the dark. Jesus says, listen to my words and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen again to John 8, 31. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, he says in the, verse 34, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Who does that include? Do you think that includes you? We're slaves to one. Without Jesus, that means without Jesus, we're slaves to sin. Without listening to Christ and his word, accepting him, you are a slave to your own sin. But if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So let's listen to our savior. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the testimony of your son that he bore witness to the truth and primarily the truth of who he is and what he's come to do to free us from living a life based on ignorance and deception. Free us from living a life in slavery to sin. Free us to know you, to be forgiven, and to live according to your plan for our lives. Live according to your design, what you made us for, that we can know you and that we can enjoy life as you have called us to enjoy life, as you have designed us to enjoy it in faith and dependence upon you. God, I pray, I don't know uh, if there are any who have come this morning who are visitors and, and perhaps this is a new thing for them that they're hearing, Lord, I pray if that's the case, you would impress the truth upon their hearts by your spirit. New birth would happen. Eyes would be opened. They would embrace the truth. They would listen to your son, Jesus Christ. They would know the truth and the truth would set them free. free. We pray this all in his name and for his sake. Amen.